the beginning of this film focuses on moralistic preaching. That was something that I experienced firsthand. In the church that I was in, I began to slowly realize that I was hearing really all law and no gospel. It was all about what you should do, serve more, love more, give more, and I was leaving church feeling frustrated, heartbroken. It was just being assumed that everyone understood who Jesus was or how the cross worked. Hey there, Shane Rosenthal here. Because Passion Week is now upon us and Easter is just around the corner, and since most of our churches are closed, we decided to unlock numerous programs from the Whitehorse Inn archive to help you and your family focus on the significance of Christ's death and resurrection. These episodes will remain accessible to all from now through the end of April. You can find a link to this special collection in the featured section there on the front page of our website, whitehorseinn.org. That's whitehorseinn.org. Five centuries ago, in taverns and public houses across Europe, the masses would gather for discussion and debate over the latest ideas sweeping the land. From one such meeting place, a small Cambridge inn called the White Horse, the Reformation came to the English-speaking world. Carrying on the tradition, welcome to the White Horse Inn. Hey there, welcome to another edition of the White Horse Inn, and joining me for today's program is Brandon Kimber, who is the writer and director for a series of documentaries titled American Gospel. His first documentary, American Gospel Christ Alone, was released in 2018, and his new film, American Gospel Christ Crucified, is being released this week through outlets such as Amazon Prime and iTunes. And so, Brandon Kimber, welcome to the White Horse Inn. Thank you for having me. So, Brandon, let me first ask, how are you and your family doing right now in light of the coronavirus pandemic? Is everyone healthy? Uh, yes, everyone is healthy right now. I'm thankful I still have a job. Yeah. I'm able to work from home. But yeah, we're all healthy. How many kids do you have there at home with you? Uh, we have four children, seven all the way down to one. Hmm. <laughs> have the kids gone stir crazy yet? Not yet. Uh, we tried to take like hikes every few days or, or walk around the block to get some energy out. <laughs> yeah, that's the way to do it. So before we talk about your film projects, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, uh, you know, in terms of your religious background, as well as what motivated you to tackle the subjects that you explore in the American Gospel documentary series? Sure. Well, I grew up in a Christian home. Uh, my parents took us to a very charismatic church and the gospel I heard was very shallow. The church I grew up in was influenced by a lot of word of faith teachers. I can recall watching Benny Hinn Crusades with my parents. My parents took us to the Toronto Blessing. Um, our church was actually a split that resulted from the Toronto Blessing that happened in the 90s. Around age 15, my parents decided to take us out of that church, and I was away from that movement for about a decade or more, and I didn't really think about it until I came across these documentaries by a filmmaker named Darren Wilson, and these films really brought back memories of my old church, mm. where they'd show faith healers like Todd White apparently healing people, you know, with gold teeth or gemstones appearing. And they're saying that this was from the Holy Spirit. So I started investigating this. At the same time, while in college, I come across some gospel 
centered sermons that were unlike anything I've ever heard before. And that led me down this path of discovering Reformed theology. Um, The gospel was just being made clear in a way that I had never heard before. Mm. And that led me into just listening to different ministries in that stream, including the White Horse Inn. Mm. (laughs) And, you know, what really helped me was understanding the distinction between the law and the gospel. Yeah, Um, I feel like that confusion, if people could understand that, it would fix so many problems. Yeah, you touched on that a little bit in your first documentary. And that film was basically tackling the problem of the prosperity gospel, which, as you say, is part of your background. And your your film is also dealing with the basic assumptions of uh, moralistic therapeutic deism and the, the wider problem of what Michael Horton would call Christless Christianity. So how was your first film received? Um, it's been overwhelming. Uh, it's in 10 languages now. Wow. I had friends who just moved to New Zealand and the church they visited was actually screening the film there. Huh. I've heard stories about um, a pastor in Peru who got a hold of it and got the Spanish subtitles and said it completely changed his preaching. Wow. So really amazing news. God has graciously used it for his glory. So how did you get involved in filmmaking in the first place? Well, filmmaking was a hobby of mine. Um, I picked up a camera around eighth grade and just, you know, would do video projects for my high school projects. And I decided that I was going to go to college and pursue a degree in film production. And right out of college, I got an internship, and that is where I still am today. We started by doing local crime stoppers television shows, kind of a local America's Most Wanted where we're interviewing detectives and family, you know, victims of homicide, trying to get tips from the public type of thing. That was really difficult financially to survive. So we got into documentaries and the first two documentaries I made are in the crime genre, kind of like the wrongful conviction genre. And after that, my boss basically gave me permission to do a passion project. You know, Mm. I got to pick the subject and I really felt like I wanted to do something to explain the gospel because I was discovering all this and I really wanted to create, you know, a tool to help some of my friends and family to understand what I had been learning. (laughs) Right. The beginning of this film focuses on moralistic preaching That was something that I experienced firsthand. Uh, In the Mm. church that I was in, I began to slowly realize that I was hearing really all law and no gospel. So Mm. it was all about what you should do, serve more, love more, give more. And I was leaving church every week feeling very frustrated, heartbroken. I had a lot of conversations with my pastor, my wife. And my pastor and I just really didn't agree on the definition of what the gospel was. What kind of definition did he give for the gospel? Well, his definition was really anything contained in the gospels itself could be the gospel. So if Mm. there are commands that Jesus gives, then that's the gospel. The good news is that we should be perfect as God is perfect. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) 
So there was no distinction there, and it was just being assumed that everyone understood who Jesus was or how the cross worked. Yeah, you get into that a little bit in your newest film, American Gospel, Christ Crucified. Tell our listeners a little bit about this new project. So American Gospel, Christ Crucified kind of explores uh, some of the more offensive and difficult aspects of the gospel, like penal substitutionary atonement, the wrath of God, hell, kind of explaining how the attributes of God work throughout all of that in the sense that God is both a righteous, holy, and just God, but he is also a gracious and loving God. He's willing to forgive all sin, but he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. So there's this seeming contradiction in the attributes of God, which is actually solved in the cross. Yeah. Um, So I kind of get into that. But what I do in the film is I'm focusing on progressive Christianity, and I'm following a few different people. I I like the way you present the main storyline of your documentary as a kind of running debate between advocates of progressive or emergent forms of Christianity and a variety of more reformational-oriented theologians or spokespersons. Why did you decide to tell the story that way? Well, I really like using contrast to show the difference between truth and error. And Mm. so I was watching a lot of my friends in youth group go off to college, and because they didn't have a solid grounding in scripture, they didn't understand the gospel because they weren't hearing the gospel, they would come back with these progressive ideas of Christianity. And I slowly started to understand that when you aren't grounding people in the scripture, they'll get challenged and they're going to go down two paths. They're either going to become an atheist or they're going to go toward this progressive version of Christianity, which I wouldn't really call Christianity. It's basically, I deny all the core essential doctrines of the gospel, but I'm going to hold on to some vague form of the moral teachings of Jesus. So my gospel is just, just love people, make the world a better place. Yeah, in fact, in some ways, it's similar to Joe Lowstein's idea of having your best life now, but it's less individualistic. So the focus is more on having your best world now. Yeah. I find it interesting that, you know, someone like Joel Osteen and maybe Rob Bell, they share a similar view of God where they would both not want to talk about the wrath of God. They would probably deny that God's wrathful at all. I don't know if I can strongly say that Osteen is a universalist, but he made a statement where he said that he saw Hindus who loved God. And so it really comes off that way based on those statements that he runs a church where he admits that atheists and Muslims attend every week and are comfortable. And why are they comfortable? Because he's not preaching the offensive gospel. They wouldn't remain atheist or Muslim, or they wouldn't be in that church if the gospel was really being preached. In terms of the filmmaking process, you know, you are getting into conversation with people with whom you disagree. So how do you navigate that? Are you upfront with people about your own views? And how do you do that? Yeah, in Christ Crucified, I interviewed Tony Jones, Bart Campolo, 
and these two guys who have a podcast called the Deconstructionist Podcast. Right. And I was honest with them about, you know, we disagree. And I basically offered them the ability to hold off on signing their appearance releases until they saw the film. I wanted to assure them that I wasn't going to take their words out of context. And, you know, I, I just wanted it to be as fair as possible because it's really hard to trust a random stranger <laughs> right, to come and interview you. So that was yeah. like my only way to get my foot in the door. And thankfully, you know, after lots of prayer, <laughs> the biggest stress of the whole thing, um, they signed their releases without any problems. So I was well, that's great. thankful for that. So, Brandon, I'd like to play for our listeners a number of short clips from your most recent documentary. And afterwards, I'll discuss with you some of the things that we heard in the clips. This first clip has to do with the way contemporary Christians think about the attributes of God and how this ends up shaping our understanding of salvation and our need for atonement. One of the problems, I think, with the American gospel today is that we start in the very wrong place. We start with the cross of Jesus Christ. We're asking them to accept a Savior that they don't even know they need. So to me, this is why we have so many false conversions today. We've only given them half the message. What we have to understand is the gospel primarily has to do with the attributes of God, not just the sin of man. You see, the sin of man wouldn't be a problem if God was like us, but God is not like us. I think in the present day, there's a lot of discomfort with the idea of God being wrathful, and there is a lot of discomfort with the idea of divinely sanctioned violence. Any idea of like a divine being who kills his son, I just reject wholeheartedly. I think it's important that when we read the Bible, we realize that we're going to read things that offend our sensibilities. That's a sick God and a sick story. And so that's why we need to let the Bible, we need to let the Word of God correct our sensibilities when they're wrong. The idea that God would say, I'm going to punish somebody else for your sins, doesn't make any sense anywhere. The problem with penal substitution is that it puts God under or beholden to some transcendent version of justice that even God has to live under that umbrella and say, well, I can't just forgive these people. Someone needs to pay the debt. And so I'd like to forgive you all, but I've got to pay off justice first. It begs the question, who's in charge here? God could say, no, I don't, I don't need these people to pay me back. I'm just going to forgive their debt. I'm going to declare a year of jubilee. All human sin is forgiven. Nobody has to die. When we say God is perfectly just and that he can't just wink at sin and forgive sinners without satisfying that justice, we're not putting an external standard above God that controls his motivations or his actions. This justice, just like his goodness and his immutability and his love are all a part of his nature and his character. They're definitional of who God is. And we know that not because that's how we like to think about God, but because that's how God has revealed himself in scripture. Surely it's within God's power to say, it's just love. We don't need justice anymore. I'm gonna wipe the slate clean. I'm gonna forgive the sin. 
Nobody has to die. That is surely within God's power. God gets to do whatever God wants. That's one of my fundamental commitments to being a theist. So one of the things that means is that God can be arbitrary. Wow. <laughs> God can be arbitrary. You know, that, of course, was Tony Jones. And what's fascinating to me, Brandon, about your documentary is how often, you know, some of the people on the more emergent or progressive side of the fence simply end up repeating ideas that we traditionally find in, you know, 19th and 20th century liberal theologians. You know, this is really nothing new. Yeah. What's new is that these older liberal views are, for some reason, are found to be increasingly attractive to many people who have been raised in evangelical households. Yes. So really, the main issue that someone like Tony Jones and other progressives have is this idea that God can't forgive without satisfying his justice. Um, Tony will say, as you heard in some of those clips, why can't he just be love? We don't need justice anymore. Why can't he just wipe the sin away based on his love? Why does he need to satisfy his justice? Which just totally does away with the cross. Any need for the cross if God can just wipe the slate clean and forgive. Yeah. And what I find so ironic is that these guys, you know, their gospel really ends up being this social justice type of gospel. And they're all yeah. about justice. But when it comes to God being just... They don't want anything to do with that. So, right. you know, when I did my interview with Tony, and you'll, you'll hear this in the film, he basically says God can do whatever he wants. Yeah. He doesn't have to be beholden to any attributes. But at the very end of the film, he says, the reason I hate penal substitution is because it makes God the author of a terribly unjust system. Yeah. And what we should ask is, wait, I thought your God didn't need to be just. <laughs> yeah. Like right. he doesn't need to be beholden to any attributes. So if, if you believe in Tony's version of God, that God can be evil anytime he wants. Right. Completely arbitrary, as he said. Uh, you know, one of the persons in that clip talked about the fact that many today are uncomfortable with the idea of God's wrath. And that's, I think, what's driving a lot of this. You know, it's something I discussed over the past two programs with uh, Dr. Michael McClymond, many people in our day just seem to be driven by their feelings. So they choose a belief that's based on whatever makes them feel good, and they either tone down those things that make them uncomfortable or they reject them altogether. Yeah, and, and God's wrath is a very uncomfortable subject. I mean, when you're talking about hell, God's wrath. What I found interesting when talking to these progressive guys is it's almost as if they think the reason we hold on to the doctrines of hell and the idea that God has wrath is because we like it and we find yeah. it comfortable. And it, it's like, no, it's, it's uncomfortable for us, but we choose to submit to how God has revealed himself in the scripture. I think you'll agree there's a real problem in the church. A lot of believers sitting in the pews are timid in expressing their faith to others. They know but don't know at the same time, and feeling cautious prevents them from talking about their faith. That's why we focus on knowing what you believe and why you believe it. It's not just for the sake of knowing more, 
Instead, we want to build a strong foundation of understanding God's Word so that we can have confidence, confidence to talk with others and share the hope of the gospel. Folks, these conversations can be tough, but we have created a collection of resources that will help equip you for that task. As a special thank you for your gift of any amount, we'll send you a digital download of our new collection called Know What Your Neighbor Believes. This collection will give you a deep understanding of God, this world, and your place in it. In order to receive your digital download, head on over to whitehorseinn.org forward slash neighbor to receive your download, or call us at 1-800-890-7556. That's whitehorseinn.org forward slash neighbor, or call us at 1-800-890-7556. Welcome back to the White Horse Inn. I'm Shane Rosenthal, and I'm talking with Brandon Kimber about his documentary film series, The American Gospel. So this next clip that I want to play for you, Brandon, has to do with the various theories of the atonement in general and the debate over penal substitution in particular. Let's listen. From the very beginning of the Bible, it's clear that somebody has to pay a price for sin. Something has to die. In the Old Testament, we have the sacrificial system. The spotless lamb had to give its life for the sins of Israel. So God called for blood to be shed. And when the people trusted in the shedding of that blood, the promise of God for the forgiveness of their their sins, they were forgiven. Not because there was anything about that animal's blood that saved them, but they were trusting in the sacrifice that God had provided for them, which was a shadow of the ultimate sacrifice to come. There must be an atonement for us to believe in, and that atonement is the person of Jesus Christ. There is a constant stream of misrepresentations, straw man arguments against penal substitution. We view God like a pagan deity who is mollified by throwing a virgin into a volcano. But what kind of God is that, that we would need to be rescued from this God? You say that God has saved you. From what has God saved you? We are saved from God Himself. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. I like to say it this way. God has saved us from Himself. God has saved us by Himself. And God has saved us for Himself. How could that God ever be good? How could that God ever be trusted? And how could that ever be good news? I mean, I had this image of God going like, okay, listen, this guy's worthy of death. I don't, I don't care if I kill him. I just, I'm going to kill somebody out there. And Jesus goes like, you can kill me. And he goes, oh, okay, as long as I get to kill somebody. And the obvious question is like, why does God need to kill anybody in order to forgive? The payment model of Jesus' death on the cross, traditionally called penal substitution, is a recent development. The idea that that theme of substitution is absent from early Christianity is demonstrably false. There are substitutionary themes in various versions of the atonement. No question about it. It doesn't mean, however, that God is demanding a payment. There there was an earlier theologian in the early 20th century, James Denny, who used the example of a man sitting on the end of the pier and falling into the water and not being able to swim. Somebody runs and jumps off the pier and saves him and brings him out. And in that, risks his own life and 
and finally actually himself ends up drowning but saving another man's life. Well, he's accomplished something, even though it was at the cost of his own life, he's accomplished saving that, that man who's in danger. What if, on the other hand, somebody's sitting on the end of the pier, perfectly fine, not falling in the water, and some guy comes running along down the pier saying, I'm going to show you how much I love you by dying for you and jumping in the water and just drowning. Well, that, that death doesn't show anything because it doesn't accomplish anything. In the first example, it accomplished the saving of that man's life and therefore it showed a self-sacrificial love. In the second example, it doesn't accomplish anything and therefore it doesn't show anything at all. Well, I think that's the problem with a lot of these other ideas of the atonement when they try to stand without substitution. It makes God a vindictive monster. Does God really love me or has he simply been paid off? The Bible is so helpful to us if we just read it, you know, that uh, the most famous verse in the Bible explains the magnificence of the love of God, you know, John 3:16, that he so loved that he gave. Jesus did not die on the cross so that the Father would love us. Jesus died on the cross because the Father loves us. We can really say that in the Son of God, God himself is taking his own righteous requirements upon himself in our place. God's justice was satisfied by God. He absorbed as God the punishment that we deserved. So when someone calls the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement divine child abuse, they're failing to make that distinction that Jesus Christ was God in the flesh, laying down his life intentionally. That's not child abuse. That is a hero of the story, taking the cross on as a means of saving his people. And what they're really criticizing is just a weak caricature of the doctrine itself. I just love that last comment from, uh, it was that Russell Berger? Yeah. Yeah. Those who reduce the substitutionary view of the atonement to a form of cosmic child abuse really aren't listening to the classical position, but instead are creating a caricature of a view which they find offensive. Yeah. And part of that is portraying Jesus as this abused child who is unwillingly, you know, the victim of his vengeful father. Which doesn't match the story at all. I mean, Jesus himself in John's gospel says, you know, I go to the cross willingly. I lay down my life for the sheep and no one takes my life from me. Yeah. And it's also really important to understand and emphasize the Trinity and the deity of Christ. Those two things, I think, progressives completely ignore when they talk about cosmic child abuse. Right. So Jesus is God, the son this is God taking on his own righteous requirements, absorbing his own wrath against sin. He's not like choosing a random innocent person, like Bart Campolo says, like punching him in the mouth in order to forgive someone else. This is God absorbing justice in himself, but in the person of God the Son, Jesus Christ. And I think the other part that is often confused is the motivations of the Father and the Son. Because they are members of the Trinity, they share the same will and motivation for the cross. So the Father isn't like waiting for the Son to sacrifice himself so that he can then love us. No, he sends the Son because he loves us. And you heard yeah. Alistair say that. And I think that's yeah. really Alistair important Begg. too. You know, ultimately what your documentary makes clear 
I believe, is that what's at stake here is nothing less than the gospel itself. Let's listen to this final clip. So there are some that would try to pit the gospel of Jesus against the gospel of Paul as if they were somehow saying different things or making different messages. Uh, I think the book of Romans is the wrong place to go to get a definition of the gospel. I think we have to get a definition of the gospel from Jesus. Mm -hmm. uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that's where he's defining the gospel. But we have to see what the book of Romans is really about. It's a bad question that is not answerable. You cannot answer what is the gospel. Jesus died on the cross for my sin. That's not the gospel. Jesus was preaching the gospel before he died on the cross for sin. So like Mark chapter 1, Jesus starts preaching the gospel. What was he preaching? He hadn't died yet. Nobody had unpacked any of it. So it must be more than his death on the cross or we wouldn't even have the gospels. We would just have, Jesus died, here's some Paul. So if he went out and started preaching the gospel, I know that no matter what, whatever he was preaching is different than what I've been told the gospel is. Yeah, yeah. As a boy growing up, it was explained to me that the Bible is a book about Jesus. Jesus is himself the gospel, the good news. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, as John the Baptist points to him. So in the Old Testament, he is predicted in the Gospels, he's revealed. In the Acts, he's preached. In the Epistles, he's explained. And in the book of Revelation, he's expected. The center of the message of both Jesus and Paul was Christ himself, Christ his work, and the response that says, I will submit, I will follow after Christ. I do not sum up the Gospel. I'm not going to do it. You're not going to bait me into it. <laughs> the good news is the kingdom of God is at hand. It's available. We can reach out and touch it. Of course, that raises the question, what does the kingdom of God mean? Jesus preached the kingdom as the forgiveness of sins. Jesus bypassed the temple and its sacrifices by offering in his own person the forgiveness of sins. Let his enemies tell us who he was. The Pharisee says, who does he think he is, this man who imagines he has the power to forgive sins? Only God has the power to forgive sins. What a blasphemer. That last guy, Brandon, was really insightful. Who was that? <laughs> <laughs> That'd be Dr. Michael Horton. Ah, I thought his voice sounded familiar. <laughs> you know, once again, you know, the whole question about you know, the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus preached that's somehow different from that which Paul preached. That used to be one of the hallmarks of old liberalism. And yet this is being repackaged today and is, you know, quote unquote, postmodern or emergent. Yeah. Um, a lot of these guys are involved in, well, it's kind of a movement started by uh, Bart Campolo's father, Tony Campolo, called Red Letter Christianity. And uh, Richard Rohr, is a part of that who I also talk about in this film. Yeah, you go into Richard War's view yeah. quite a bit. But I think this view kind of stems from that where they're elevating the words of Jesus over the rest of Scripture. So they're going to say, we can only really know what the gospel is from the gospels, not you know from Romans, as Brian McLaren said in that clip. And I think the best explanation is what you heard Alistair say. Jesus himself 
is the gospel, his person and work, his sinless life, substitutionary death, resurrection. That's the gospel. So, you know, we aren't the gospel. Jesus is. And like, you can't say that Jesus never mentioned his death. Like he predicted it. He said, I'm the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. So I have come to give my life as a ransom for many. Yeah. Even as that was unfolding and people were maybe not fully understanding it, um, that message was still the same. Yeah. Furthermore, you know, the Old Testament is everywhere alluding to, foreshadowing, predicting this gospel well in advance, not only of Paul, but of the four gospels. Yeah. I think of a text like Second Samuel 7, where David is told that one of your sons shall sit on this throne forever and ever. So this is an eternal king who is coming, and that's good news. And he inaugurates redemption, so he's not just an eternal king, he's an eternal priest, and he speaks the word of God, so he's a prophet. All those themes that you see so clearly in a text like Isaiah 53, with its emphasis on penal substitution and this idea that the suffering servant would be pierced for our transgressions. This is the gospel being (laughs) announced throughout the Old Testament, so when this Messiah comes, that's why we call it the gospels, because this is the long-awaited expectation. Like you said, they they call this the gospel of the kingdom, and really how they define that, they're not very clear. It, it ends up being kind of a social justice. Um, Jesus came to liberate people from the oppressors like Rome. Right. But when we're, we're talking about the kingdom, we're talking about a king. Again, we go back to the person. Jesus is the king, and so we're back to the same gospel as Paul. Yeah, exactly. He's the good news of the kingdom is what is announced by Jesus, but that good news culminates in this king wearing a crown of thorns, which is what we celebrate at this particular time of year. So Brandon, where can our listeners go for more information about these two documentaries that you've made? Well, our website is americangospelfilm.com. The film will be released on iTunes and Amazon and the other major streaming platforms like Google Play on April 7th, so you can rent or buy it there. Well, folks, we've run out of time for this radio and podcast edition of the program, but you can hear my complete interview with film director Brandon Kimber at whitehorseinn.org. Here's a sample of what we discussed on the extended version. If you love what is right, you will hate what is evil. That applies to humans. We see injustice and we have a reaction to that. Yeah. How could we say that God couldn't have that same reaction, but to an infinite degree? Yeah, if this is the infinite holy God, you know, it's not a trivial thing to flip him off. If you would like to get extended editions of every White Horse Inn episode, consider signing up for one of our support programs. Just head over to whitehorseinn.org slash podcast partner. That's whitehorseinn.org slash podcast partner. Before we go, if you're a fan of the show, please remember to leave a positive review at iTunes or your preferred podcast portal. The more reviews we get, the more exposure we get. And finally, if you'd like to recommend a topic for us to discuss or have a question you'd like us to tackle, just head over to whitehorseinn.org slash askshane. Thanks for being with us this week, and we'll see you next time at the White Horse Inn. Stay safe.